Friendo, welcome to the mandatory redistribution party. How's it going? Anyone snapped yet? Since our last broadcast, the CIA have managed to infect Comrade Morley with the dreaded Ronies, but rest assured he is on the mend and almost out of the Rhone zone. For this episode, I had the privilege of talking to Ben Tippett, a researcher on wealth inequality, about his fantastic new book, Split. The book is a tight, well-researched and accessible dive into the class divide in Britain today. If you want an engaging book that will let you quickly understand how and why our society became and remains so unequal, uh, or if you want to radicalise someone who's right on the edge of that light bulb flicking on, this book nails it. I talked to Ben about the many ways understanding class helps us understand the world and perhaps how to change it how the boomer millennial generation war might conceal a class issue, the links between class and the sexism and racism that cut through our society, and Ben's spicy take on Billy Elliot. It's a real good chat. Thank you for listening, and thank you very much to our patrons like Neil Taylor, Izzy Birchall, and Cardboard Children. Finally, the sun is back and they can go outside. Unless they're on lockdown. If you made out of cardboard, you're on lockdown. Can cardboard spread the Ronies? Let us know. Uh, we really do appreciate your support, especially in these tough times. So, here it is. Here's the app. Ben, what is the fundamental class divide in our society? In Britain, we are famed for our rigid class hierarchies, yeah? It's become such a confusing concept as well. Mm. We see this in our politics, but I, I kind of also saw this a lot running workshops in schools, which is kind of one of the ways in that I had to writing the book. And lots of students were giving so many different definitions of class. For some students, the, the kind of important class divide was the idea that class is this kind of rigid social hierarchy between a kind of lower class and middle class and an upper class mm. that kind of defined esteem and status, you yeah. know, and they, they didn't want to put themselves in that hierarchy hierarchy because it was a, seen as a kind of negative. Um, but then there's also this kind of idea that class is like just a cultural mm. thing. Like it's about your accents and it's about where in the country you live, whether you eat quinoa or whether you drink kind of like frothy coffees or like builder's cup of tea or something. You know what I mean? Like these kind of like symbols of class that have become so powerful recently, I think. We had an episode called Phantom Gammon about culturally defined class where middle class, yeah. to be middle class is to eat hummus, recycle and listen to Radio 4. And to be working class is to be a white straight man from the north who is probably racist yeah exactly like, and when you mention class to people that is an image of class that people have in their minds mm. do you know what i mean like it's sad and it's a stereotype but it's been reproduced so much 
I think what's really missing from this and what I found was completely missing from students' answers to my question of what is class was the kind of Marxist analysis that there is a clear split and divide in the economy Mm. between kind of capital and labor. I found it really hard to actually even bring in the terms capital and labor without students' eyes glossing over, you know, these are seen (laughs) as such kind of outdated concepts. Yeah. I wanted to write the book to try and give those terms some relevance for today and try and talk about them in relation to contemporary issues. You know, maybe just to briefly say what the divide is. And it's not necessarily just a divide between people who are rich and people who are poor. Mm. We live in a society in which the ownership of all the things in that society, Mm. the financial assets, the houses, the business assets, these things are concentrated. When you own these assets, what you have is an ability to extract income from them. If you own a house, you can rent it out and earn an income from it from not really doing anything. If you own a stock and share, you can extract a dividend from it. Mm. Again, not really doing anything. That kind of way of making money, I guess, is contrasted to the other way of making money, which is the one probably most of us are more familiar with, which is the idea of having to go out to work and kind of earn an income doing wage labor. And I think this divide, even though it's kind of, it is messier than it has maybe been at certain points in the past, but I think it's it's still such an important divide for understanding where inequality comes from and why people do the things that they do in the economy uh, and really where power lies in, in modern Britain today. The biggest class divide in society is between the people who own stuff, uh, who control the places we work and make money through ownership and the people who can only survive by selling their labour. And they have to sell their labour because the way that they pay for where they live and what they eat is money because everything exists in a market and there's no escape from that system. I think it's really interesting, um, you know, you're talking about the students you're talking to in workshops, almost rolling their eyes at these kinds of ideas. Because they're doing that because they're like, oh, this is like ideology, right? They're not just doing it because it's like outdated. They're like, oh, this is like Marxism. And then it's the interesting thing of, well, you know, you were saying they're reluctant to see themselves as living in this class system or or, Mm. or in a a social hierarchy. But obviously that is massively ideological as well. But but because it's the dominant ideology, they're just like, oh, yeah, this is just the truth. This is just what I've ended up independently thinking. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and this is kind of how I start the book, I guess. I I start it with like, why is there such a kind of confusion around class? Mm. You know, why are we not talking about capital and labor? And why is there this idea that kind of class is such an outdated concept? What, What we have in Britain is kind of in a way, our understanding of class is stuck, I think, in the kind of last period where there was like a proper class consciousness mm. the 1980s and and this obviously came with huge changes in the global economy with the rise of kind of neoliberalism mm. and the central premise of neoliberalism being individual competition a good way to think about this is the film billy elliot it's kind of a, a parable of neoliberalism it was made at the high noon of neoliberalism tony blair just won you know it was the new millennium everybody could become a successful homeowner in britain today and get rich off it mm. and in billy elliot what obviously happens a, a young boy who grows up in a northern working uh, class town during the miners' strike uh he wants to become a ballet dancer mm. Uh, and so it's kind of set against the backdrop of this kind of year-long strike. What what happens as the film goes on is that Billy Elliot's kind of community collectively tries to kind of fight for their rights and loses. Mm. What Billy Elliot does is he kind of individually becomes a very like successful, talented ballet dancer, moves down to London without 
I'm going to give it away because I'm assuming <laughs> most people have seen the end. At the end of the kind of film, like it opens up with him in somewhere like a, I don't know, Sadler's Wells or something like yeah. a kind of ballet s- scene in London where he's like playing the kind of main part. So it's such a, you know, like it's like be, mm. to be successful, you have to be a competitive, individual, talented ballet dancer. Don't start kind of trying to organize class struggle with your community because you'll be a failure, you know. You also point out the same guy who made that makes the, the crown. Yeah, the crown is it looks at the battles and the customs of the top end of Britain's class system. And mm. I thought it was interesting that this guy, Stephen Doldry, also was so interested in the bottom of the class hierarchy as well. And it's all about kind of reproducing these, I think, very nostalgic images of class. Yeah. Going back to my point about, you know, why are we so confused about class? Well, I think in a way we're kind of constantly bombarded with these very nostalgic images of class. It just feels outdated. And it's not just The Crown or Billy Elliot. It's also Downton Abbey and this kind of stuff. Mm. And our media love to just reproduce this and sell it to audiences across the world. And I kind of start the chapter with this idea that class is this kind of lucrative British export in that kind of way. You know, (laughs) we we sell these nostalgic images of Britain's class past to the rest of the world. The view of class that does persist... Instead of labour versus capital, this idea of white traditional working class versus liberal metropolitan elite, the kind of uh, crude class analysis that was applied to Brexit, for example, either from a kind of hard hard remain line of the working class has been bamboozled um, and they're to blame for this. For, for being tricked, or on the other hand, the appropriation of the working class by the right to be, oh, these are the authentic voice of working Britain is one that's white, male and xenophobic. Um, yeah. Our elite project is justified because it's serving this this working class, even though, you know, it's totally mythologized. That's class as it exists in yeah. political discourse. They're almost trying to say those same communities mythologized in Billy Elliot are the ones who've been betrayed by, for example, the idea that we're letting all the immigrants in or whatever. Exactly, exactly. I think that's kind of what I was trying to get at, really. In a way, it's like class is obviously coming back onto the agenda, as you say, you know, like I think and as neoliberalism starts to kind of fall apart, which we're seeing so rapidly now, Mm. the right have really taken this opportunity to form a class message that just times so neatly with that Mm. old nostalgic image of class that we've just been constantly kind of consuming since the 1980s. Even Billy Elliot is the kind of left behind thing, I think, is like Billy leaves his community to go to this metropolitan elite London as well. So I feel like within that, there's almost that divide there being told a little bit as well. Yeah, to do Um, ballet, which is coded as a middle class. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally, you know, so it's like, I think really, really the aim now is we absolutely have to reclaim class, Mm. tell a message of capital versus labor Mm. that unites working people across the country, whether you're in an old industrial community or whether you're in Southeast London. This is a hard task. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. I, don't, I definitely don't have the bloody answers to it. I mean, no. It's an absolutely impossible. Mm. It's not an impossible thing. It's a thing that we can do. Yeah. But it's a, I think it's one of the biggest struggles that um, left movements across the world have right now. A lot of us know that that is the task, but the how is um, challenging, yeah. right? 
I'd say what it's definitely not, as some some on the left would say, certainly not Ben or myself, which is that we need <laughs> to go to like a class first analysis and just get away from all this gender and race stuff because class is the only true material thing that we should care about and everything else is secondary and which is the sort of left's version of that mm. um, abandoned white working class versus the liberal metropolitan elite. Uh, mm. That is also something that you see on the left, fringe factions of the left, or maybe the parliamentary Labour by depressingly, uh, who kind yeah. of, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they will happily put controls on immigration on a mug and justify it as like, well, we need to do that. The working class voters are fundamentally racist and ultimately this is good for them because then we'll get in and then the Labour government will, will help them. But never mind the working class immigrants who yeah. they're like screwing over, like... Even those factions of the left that we probably don't agree with. Um, I mean, I've assumed you don't agree with them there, but I, from yeah. reading your book, I, I think it's a fair assumption. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the, they're acknowledging the same thing, though, right? They're acknowledging that the mm. left needs to reclaim a class analysis of society, but they've just picked they've picked up the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they picked up the wrong tool or whatever. Yeah. yeah. This is so much part of the story, you know, like the whole liberal metropolitan elite versus an authentic working class. Mm. This concept of authentic is just so obviously used mm. as a dog whistle for white or for British. You know, mm. it's like it's used as a kind of placeholder for um, for kind of a racialized understanding of the working class Absolutely. Uh, that really is, you know, just only going to further a, a kind of reactionary right wing project. When I was thinking about race, again, like one of the things I found um, was because of this kind of outdated idea of class mm. in some of the schools that uh, we were doing workshops, it was kind of predominantly BME students. Mm. There is this kind of idea that in a way class doesn't really refer to them. Mm. There was a report by the Runnymede Foundation mm. and class, the think tank, where they interviewed lots of people across London. Yeah. And there were quite a few quotes from teenage Londoners saying things like kind of, I never thought of class applying to black people. You know, I thought this right. was just something that, you know, was something about Victorian times or something mm -hmm. that I just only only learned about in my sociology class <laughs> and I think was one, literally one of the quotes in a weird way it kind of crossed over with another argument from a completely different demographic that I'm sure none of these people would like to be associated with mm. which is the kind of Nigel Farage Brexiteer argument yeah? yeah which is also this idea that kind of class doesn't apply to to quote black people because their narrative is as I said that to be working class you have to quote be authentic mm. which is actually just to quickly slide into a narrative about being white I guess summed up the argument is that immigration has left our kind of white working class as an underclass. Mm. I wanted to write in the book, uh, look a little bit about the history of why whiteness and class have been associated with each other. Yeah. Like what is the history there? Like where does that come from? In Britain's first colony in what is now the US, mm. uh, which is Virginia, 1607, uh, I think Virginia was established. So it, it wasn't until 1619, actually, that the, the first kind of um, Africans were brought over to Virginia to effectively be used as indentured servants. And this historian has this quote, he, he says, like, when the first Africans arrived in Virginia in 1619, there were no, quote, white people there. Mm. Um, and, and the kind of argument he makes is that people weren't necessarily segregated along racial lines. Mm. Indentured servants were being brought from Africa and also from kind of mainland Europe as well. Mm. Um, and all servants were kind of beaten, maimed, and even kind of been killed with impunity. Mm. Um, one of the kind of 
problems for the British colonial elite. This created a, a kind of unification, I guess, within the, the within this kind of working class in the new colonies. They said that there was a problem of fleeing or quote fornicating between the different people. <laughs> and so, and there was this big uprising in, in 1676 in the capital city of Jamestown that actually forced all the kind of the governors and the colonial elite to flee back to England. And when they came back, they basically implemented these very harsh regimes and laws and divided everything along, along a racial line at this mm. point. They kind of invented the concept of whiteness. And it was only in kind of 1691 that the term white was first introduced into the law. And it being white really was about giving economic benefits to people. To be white meant that you could own land. Even if you were poor, it was like you could work your way up and start to own land. And so it was really tied to this concept of ownership, while to be black meant that you were property that then could be owned. And it was the start of slavery. Giving the white working class a material advantage that reflects the difference between the global north and the global south. You know, we're talking about class division in Britain, but even the poorest Britain is vastly more wealthy than the average person in the global south. Um, mm. the, the biggest class divide in the world there is enforced by borders. That is kind of uh, an echo of that same, let's give certain people advantages so they can kind of see themselves as part of this, this Volk, this in-group, and then project their animosity outside rather than up in the class system, right? Exactly. There's an economist, a guy called Branko Milanovic, mm. one of the top chief economists in the World Bank. He's kind of now just writes a lot of the global statistics on inequality. Mm. And he's got this interesting article where he, he, he looks at what were the differences between different workers mm. in different countries. Mm. Like what were the income differences at the time that Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto? And he looks at it now. So for example, what would be the difference between a low paid worker in the UK and a low paid worker in Chile mm. in the 1840s? And what would be the difference between um, those two people now? And does this for kind of a load of different countries? And his big argument is that in a way, exactly as you're saying, there's so much more of an inequality now yeah. between different workers across different countries. Mm. When Marx kind of was saying, you know, workers of the world unite, mm. people had a shared material experience of the economy then mm. in a way that maybe they don't now, yeah. which is a huge problem for trying to build international solidarity across the world, you know. Mm. That was something I thought we need to kind of put that into our class analysis in a, in a clearer way as well. Because it is a class analysis, right? This is the thing of like yeah. hand-waving away immigration as not about class or not a not a true material concern is bullshit <laughs> yeah 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 exactly um yeah because exactly i mean i kind of feel like after i read that i was like maybe if marx was around today then maybe he would be writing about the border system more than the waged labor system in a way you know like maybe yeah. the border system is acting as this clearest division between different people i know that's completely against the premise of my book so maybe i shouldn't be saying <laughs> that but <laughs> No, the book's good. You can, that but can you know be, what I mean? You need both. Yeah, yeah, you need yeah. Both. You, you, know, could, you need both. You can um, think things that aren't in the book. Yeah. Um, I'm not now just tied to this text forever, you know? Uh, I think on the back of that, if, we, if we're talking about attempts to decouple class from race or kind of juxtapose class to race, the other thing that that happens with is gender. 
One interesting point you say, you, you point out how media narratives around the gender pay gap tend to focus, well, they focus on two things, the underrepresentation of women in high status jobs. Uh, mm-hmm. So not enough women CEOs exploiting the labor of working class women <laughs> or yeah. pumping poison into the water, you know, or not enough women working for Shell or Sheel as it was labeled on International <laughs> Women's Day. Um, uh, oh my God, yeah. Oh, that was cringe. That just something died in a lot of people that day. <laughs> so it was the <laughs> reveal at the end um if someone had made it as satire it would have i would have been jealous but yeah, instead yeah, i was yeah, just yeah. angry uh well the, the second thing that people pick up on in the gender pay gap in mainstream media discourse is the pay difference between celebrities and uh, you know you use the yeah. example of like chris evans being paid five times more than claudia winkleman at the bbc yeah so why is the focus in our discourse on these things why is it on the underrepresentation of women in high status jobs and the pay differential between c- celebrities and then the deeper question of where should the focus really be and what causes that gender pay gap? You know, I think it's just much easier within the, the neoliberal discourse when the gender pay gap is brought up to just focus on this kind of difference at the top. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, all of this argument is kind of, it's not an argument I've, I'm making for the first time. It's kind of taken yeah. a lot from Dawn Foster's critique of Sheryl Sandberg. Sheryl Sandberg mm. is one of the Facebook managing executives yeah. who wrote this book called Lean In, which is kind of like in order to overcome gender inequality, what we need to do women is, you know, lean into the capitalist system. Mm. We have to kind of work harder, have higher aspirations. Mm. What she doesn't say, but what she means is also um, fuck over and exploit more workers, <laughs> you know, to get to the top. Yeah, That's the way in which we overcome gender inequality. Mm. Dawn Foster's argument is that we need to lean out in a way what we need to do is we need to be challenging structurally the systems that cause gender inequality Mm. and I thought you can really discuss this in the gender pay gap quite neatly Mm. because there's just so many different elements of the gender pay gap Mm. like obviously different pay at the top of the distribution is part of the story yeah Yeah, like the different why some millionaires i.e. rich men Mm. are paid more than other millionaires i.e. rich women Mm. will be part of the story of the gender pay gap But just focusing on that misses two other huge important drivers Mm. of the gender pay gap. The first is occupational segregation. Yeah. There's a gender division of labor Mm. within the formal paid sector. Mm. Women are more likely to be doing jobs such as cleaning, working in retail, working as an administrator. We can think about the difference in this. Mm. Even when I mentioned two jobs, you can think about it as a kind of stereotype. Yeah. Like a doctor versus a nurse, mm. a manager versus a secretary. Mm. We have gendered conceptions of which kind of jobs should be done by who. It's the jobs that are kind of seen as feminized jobs mm. that are the ones that are paid less. Mm. Why is that? Why is it that the jobs that women are, are segregated into are the ones that are paid less? Mm. Part of the story is because of the fact that it is considered to be women's work and mm. therefore it's considered to be undervalued. Mm. And this gets to a kind of fundamental question, I guess, in economics, which is why are some jobs paid more than others? Mainstream economics has the view people are paid according to how productive they are. Yeah. A CEO is paid more than a cleaner because when a CEO joins a company, the stock price of that company increases, you know, a mm. few million. When if a cleaner joins that company, the stock price doesn't change. The great stock price line will tell us who's productive <laughs> and who's not. This has been challenged a lot, but with this corona crisis, mm. this is getting completely blown out of the water. Yeah? yeah. We're seeing that the most important jobs are the jobs that are traditionally seen as women's work. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, a lot of them are jobs that have been underpaid and precarious. So, for example, nurses, carers, uh, exactly, carers. Actually, go to the government's list of key workers and have a look at it. It's quite interesting. Mm. Why is it that uh, what is considered to be women's work is lower paid? And I use the example of the film Hidden Figures. Mm-hmm. It's a film about the three black women working in NASA during the Apollo mission. Mm. What's kind of interesting about the film is that it kind of f- follows the like forgotten history of black female programmers and mathematicians within the space program. Mm. So a lot of the kind of calculations and programming of early computers and, and all of the calculations to actually get people to the moon was were done by black women. Yeah. At the time, this was not considered to be intellectual work. This was considered <laughs> to be kind of like administrative labor it was considered to be kind of low skilled and monotonous and clerical it's so amazing if you um, contrast that with that sort of learn to code bro like thing well exactly of- well, and so actually it's kind of interesting to know like where that came from it actually came in the 80s mm. with the rise of the personal computer so people could kind of have a computer in their home parents would buy computers for their their sons and not for their daughters and so like through this kind of commodification of the computer that was one of the reasons why it's it kind of switched from being seen as a kind of female profession to a male Mm. profession plus with the fact that at the time value added within the technology sector Mm. was massively increasing there were more profits to be made higher wages to be earned and men therefore were like oh actually i want a little bit of that I think it's a useful um, analogy, really, Mm. to get us to think about why it's not that these jobs that are low paid and traditionally done by women are the least productive. It's our understanding of them is the thing that determines how much they're paid. Totally. So that's that's occupational segregation. And the second aspect of that would be the unpaid labour undertaken by women. Um, that, exactly. that isn't coded as wage labour that needs to be compensated, but nonetheless helps sustain the system. Women spend 26 hours per week on average doing unpaid domestic work, mm-hmm. and that's nearly double the amount done by men. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, there's, there's a lot of theories about why unpaid labor became something predominantly done by women. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I quite like the theory by Silvia Federici. Legend. Um, kind of her theory, I guess, that when we look at the birth of capitalism, we can't just look at the enclosures, mm-hmm. um, you know, the privatization of common land. We also need to talk about the witch hunts because the witch yeah. hunts were a really important aspect of basically consigning women's labor into the household uh, so that they could just reproduce the workforce. So basically anybody that did didn't fit into this mold of I'm going to stay at home and give birth to new workers to feed the accumulation of capital mm. were considered to be kind of deviant and therefore killed. Over the centuries, you know, these, this kind of stereotype has kind of stayed with us uh, and has been kind of reinforced and refined despite, you know, obviously strong resistance and challenges to it from feminist movements across the world. Mm. If we tie those two things together, if we look at both how those not seen as white and women, their disadvantages in the current class system were originally brought about by violence. There's that Marx line about how capitalism comes into the world dripping with blood. With slavery, that was achieved through violence and the property relations were enforced through violence. And then women Mm. who were resisting enclosure and resisting the origins of capitalism, they were disciplined through violence as well. And then that that stuff just kind of echoes through to now and stuff Mm. that's seen as ideologically seen as natural, you know, like women are naturally caregivers is a result of violent coercion hundreds of years ago that's then just Mm -hmm. embedded in our society. Bleak. Yeah, man. Yeah. No, it's true that like how, as you say, stuff that happened literally 400 years ago is still having such an effect on our politics. 
and our economics. And I think that's why we talk about it so much mm. on the left. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, I think sometimes people think, oh, why are you bringing up all this stuff that happened <laughs> ages ago? Do you know what I mean? It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. bad, but like in ancient Rome, they had slaves and women's oppression has been something that's happened across every single society across the whole of human history. And it's like, okay, yeah, <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with you. Obviously, yeah, yeah. all societies have horrendous, violent aspects to them. Mm. The reason why we're talking about these historical facts is because they still literally are reproduced in our politics day in, day out. And we need to understand where those ideas came from. Let's go back to thinking about class in a kind of big picture and maybe start with the absolutely bleak George Osborne quote that I'd actually suppressed until I read it again mm. in your book, which is this mm. 2012 classic uh, from George Osborne, Chancellor at the time. It is unfair that someone leaves their home early in the morning and they pull the door behind them and they are going to do their job and they look at their next door neighbour. The blinds are down and the family is living a life on benefits. Ugh. Um, God, man, yeah. How does this, you know, the, the language used at the time of like strivers versus skivers, how does this mm. um, thinking distort how people see class or is very much out of the playbook that like class doesn't really matter. Mm. You know, we're all individuals competing in a kind of global economy. And if you're, you know, if you're failing, it's because you're not working hard enough mm. um, or you're, and, and therefore like the state shouldn't kind of intervene to try and help you because it will just kind of encourage laziness. And it's really from this idea that kind of class as a structural inequality that limits people's opportunities and abilities and like helps others just doesn't exist. I think this relates a lot to what's happening now with the corona crisis. Mm -hmm. The welfare state has been completely decimated by austerity measures mm. justified by this type of ideology that George has been saying about. The welfare budget under the cuts was actually less than the tax cuts that George Osborne implemented as part of austerity. Okay, so there's this kind of idea that like austerity was like an economic necessity. Yeah, yeah. like we spent too much after the 2008 crisis to bail out the financial system and mm. therefore somebody had to foot the bill and it had to be the state. And we therefore had to cut back on spending and increase taxes to try and balance the budget. And this was seen as a necessary. This is sensible economics. Mm. The slight segue is is one of the primary papers, mm. I'm sure people probably have actually heard about this, but it's a point worth repeating to everyone you know, is that one of the primary <laughs> papers that justified austerity that said if your government debt to GDP ratio gets too high, then your economy ends up running away and collapsing or something, you know, like yeah. you'll have huge costs to your GDP. One of the papers that was trying to justify this stuff was actually found out by a PhD student to be based on a spreadsheet error, like somewhere within the Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. The results were just completely false. They were completely wrong. I remember that coming out. It was in the Miliband era of Labour. And I remember yeah. everyone knew even without that little technical glitch that everyone knew the premise was kind of absolutely bonkers anyway. But when the, when this when that actual thing came out in a just world, it would have been front page news and the Labour Party would have picked it up. But instead they went into the next election basically saying, we'll do a compassionate austerity or, you know, whatever um, the, that grim yeah. era put forward. Um, 
God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actual spreadsheet that, 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 This is the, yeah, as you say, you know, we don't just <laughs> need to have the spreadsheet error to understand that this was a political choice. You know, austerity, mm. the idea that you would put cuts, such extreme cuts on the welfare budget at the same time as giving tax breaks to predominantly the richest in society. That was the other thing. There was reports by the IFS at the time that looked at the distribution of these tax cuts mm. and it was predominantly benefiting the richest in society because the, the tax cuts that they implemented would cuts to things like corporation tax. That's literally a giveaway mm. to profits. The discourse about what austerity was, was, well, you know, we're all in this together. We have to make tough decisions. Um, although my tough decisions are decisions that are not going to affect me, but you. <laughs> um, mm. Like it was, it was never about rebalancing the economy. It was about disciplining the working class, like disciplining mm. the working class to make them even more exploitable by capital, mm. even more exploitable, even more likely to take up things like zero hours contracts, which have massively increased. Of course, private companies like ATOS can make a little bit of money on the side by doing fit for work tests yep. and things like that. Um, exactly. But ultimately, it's about making working class people feel like shit and feel yep. uh, afraid and feel vulnerable in order that they can be more effectively exploited. I mean, like you say in the book, like you, you make that point elsewhere when you're talking about the prison system, where you're talking about empirical studies yeah. demonstrate that our prison system is completely ineffective at rehabilitating people. You, you, you drop that a, a Carla quote where uh, it costs more to send a child to prison than it does to Eton. And then you yeah. dare to suggest, I think probably quite accurately, almost as if it, the function of prison is not to rehabilitate people, but precisely mm -hmm. to reproduce the race and class inequalities that it does. And is, the, exactly. the austerity agenda, I think, fits in exactly that paradigm of if we, instead of looking at what they say it's for and going, oh, it, look, it's failing on this metric, we go, well, what is its actual effect? Perhaps mm. that effect is its intended effect, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, on the prison point, I think this is... Mm. It's such an important, the prison as an institution is such an important way of reproducing class uh, relations mm. in in society. Obviously, people from all different classes commit crimes. Totally. You know, if you commit a crime and you're, f even if it's a kind of a horrific crime, yeah. um, and, and, and it's actually an illegal crime. Yeah. I'm not just talking about kind of like moral crimes that might be hard to kind of pin down in a court of law, like, for example, arms sales that are going on at the moment to bomb civilians in Yemen, or, um, for example, Grenfell. the kind of ongoing destruction of the cat planet or mm. Grenfell or something. You know, these mm. things that are kind of morally horrific and should be illegal, but at the moment aren't, might be hard to criminally prosecute someone. I'm not talking about yeah. these things. I'm talking about actual crimes that you could criminally prosecute for. We see so many examples where if you're systemically powerful enough, mm. you won't be held to account. And there's the example in 2012 of HSBC was found by US federal investigators to have laundered at least $881 million for the Mexican Sinaloa drug cartel, mm. uh, which is actually run by this billionaire El Chapo that I talk a little bit about in chapter mm -hmm. four as well. And basically, you know, the investigators actually discovered that senior bank officials were complicit in illegal activity. Mm. The U.S. Attorney General decided not to prosecute the bank. Um, <laughs> and, decided. And why? You know, yeah, exactly. You know why? And this, this really, this came after basically a huge diplomatic campaign waged mm. by guess who our very own ex-chancellor of the exchequer george osborne <laughs> who was crying you know he was basically crying wolf that mm. if you touch hsbc 
we might cause another global financial disaster. And so <laughs> HSBC was let off with kind of a tiny fine. Nobody was sent to prison. And um, I, basically it kind of, it really, it reminded me of this quote that I read in a book by a guy called um, Nicholas Saxon, who mm. he writes about Treasure Islands. He writes mm. about tax havens in his book called Treasure Islands. Mm. And he's written a new book called The Finance Curse. And he has this kind of really powerful quote by a top executive who told him or told one of his sources, if you think Her Majesty's government is ever going to prosecute people of my class, you are utterly mistaken. We are a protected species. I think that just kind of uh, sums up the like the the kind of criminal justice system in the UK. It's not to necessarily say we should be incarcerating more people. I don't think that. Yeah, your your point is not we should lock up the naughty capitalists in this fucked up justice system. It's that the justice system is fucked up. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but then I think there is an, an important point to make about austerity, mm. um, which is I think that that battle is kind of. It's not over in the sense that people's lives are still being hugely destroyed by austerity policies today, Mm. uh, particularly when we look at welfare. The universal credit system, uh, the impact that this has had on disabled people particularly, which is something I talk about in the book. Mm. Um, Five million disabled people in this country are in poverty. The the link between disability and poverty is (laughs) an absolute crime um, Mm. in our society. Uh, Six in ten families that have somewhere, someone with a disability currently go without a basic necessity, i.e. food, shelter or heating. And that's before the corona crisis has come in. And I think what you're seeing now is a lot of people forced onto universal credit will understand basically what disabled people have been living with over the last 10 years. This is a class issue that we really need to continue fighting to improve the welfare system so that it isn't just so vicious and destroys people's lives in our country. But I think we do also need to recognise that fighting the austerity battle of 2016 today Mm -hmm. against Boris Johnson's government is not going to be effective. Because, you know, this government is happy to spend money. Yeah. Um, I think we just need to be thinking about um, where that money is being spent, who's benefiting from it and who's going to fit the bill from it. One more thing I'd like to hear your opinion on, given you've written this book about class, is how class functions in the generational divide. You know, that sort of boomers versus millennials. Thing. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's, it's very easily memeable and you're going to get retweets yeah. for ripping on the boomers, right? But... Then you kind of go, oh, well, but this is a bit of a distraction from class, race and gender issues or indeed disability that because there's going to be boomers who are black and poor, right? You know, it's a distraction from the real class thing. But to an extent, actually, that boomer millennial thing is a shorthand for class division because a lot of the resentment toward boomers isn't towards boomers just as a whole. It's towards a particular kind of boomer who got their house real cheap, uh, grew up in a period of full employment Mm. with decent welfare and maybe even got to go to uni for free that has material advantages over a millennial who over their lifetime Mm. is now projected to be, you know, less, you know, is it? £400,000 over their lifetime worse off than their parents' mm. generation, or, you know, on, on a, mm. as a kind of crude mean average. Um, yeah. Like the boomer millennial thing, I've moved from going, this is concealing the real class division to now thinking that is an expression of the class division in Britain. Do, I mean, definitely. I, I would love to hear your opinion on those, on that. Yeah, I think it's not to say that 
class is solely a generational issue. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's not. Mm-hmm. But clearly, clearly, there's there's some kind of resurgence of a class experience within the young. Definitely, you know. So I think un- this has kind of been under the banner of like millennial socialism. Yeah, mm. like there seems to be a rise in young people having an unfavorable view towards the economic system, towards mm. capitalism, and this kind of shows out in quite a lot of polls mm. across different times and across different countries. Okay? Yeah. So it's not. I, I feel like just sometimes picking an opinion poll <laughs> at one single point in time to justify your point of view isn't particularly legitimate you know it's not necessarily completely corroborated yeah. but definitely what we've seen is in britain for example uh, in 2016 there was a yougov poll that showed young people between the ages of 18 and 24 were 18 percent more likely to have a favorable view than an unfavorable view of socialism mm. and their views on capitalism was the complete opposite uh, a very similar poll in the u.s showed the same thing and my favorite is one in australia which was actually commissioned by a right-wing think tank mm. uh, hoping to find that young people would be pro-capitalists and <laughs> hate socialism Uh, to their horror found that 58% of millennials favoured socialism to capitalism and 59% thought that, quote, capitalism had failed and government should exercise more control of the economy. 59% of young Australians thought that. So I think, you know, and you're seeing this as well in the generational divides in voting, yeah, Mm. between, we saw this in the Labour Party, Mm. also in, in the US elections as well with Bernie Sanders as well, the young primarily coming out and voting for these more radical platforms while older generation completely rejecting them. Electorally for the left, it's been a bit of a disaster because uh, young people, again, with the Billy Elliot um, Mm. kind of parable, young people tend to live more in cities and given the electoral system, the left are winning huge majorities in these places while also losing places more in rural districts. Trying to find a politics where we can talk about this without just attacking boomers, as you say, (laughs) like in a kind of meme way. Yeah is also super important where did this come from i think Mm. we in the uk the story is massively one about housing as you said Mm -hmm. like it's just we've had a situation where if you were born at a particular point in time generally in the south of the uk as well you know so say you kind of came of age and started getting your first job in the the early 90s let's say uh like my my parents generation um And, and you managed to buy a house at that time, then you hugely benefited from asset price inflation in the British housing system. Uh, yeah. And this has caused such an inequality. And it's something I talk about in the book because the question, why is housing so expensive? Why is it so unaffordable? Even the way in which different people answer that question, I think mm. tells us a lot about class. Mm. So generally speaking, what you hear from government or from Britain's media class is that Britain is just full up all right like <laughs> where there's just too many people in the UK that's why housing is so expensive you know there's there's just too much demand um every everywhere you know th- th- there's we're all just crammed into this small island and that will inevitably push up the price of land and the price of housing just got to seize the golf and, courses exactly yeah <laughs> take those golf courses exactly you know but actually the price of housing really has nothing to do with population levels. Mm-hmm. This is just completely a myth. Britain's house prices increased by something like 200% in the 10 years running up to the financial crisis in mm-hmm. 2008, which was the kind of main period of house price growth in this country. And during that time, though, for every four new people who were added to, the, to Britain's population through immigration and through new births, three new homes were built. Okay. So, so basically, 
that's enough homes, mm. given the fact that very few of us actually live on our own. Yeah. That's enough homes to kind of meet the demand of Britain's increasing population. It doesn't explain this astronomical rise in house prices. So the question is, what does explain that? It is a story of capital and labor, mm. I think. Mm. It's about the commodification of housing. Mm-hmm. Housing has been turned into a, a property rather than mm-hmm. somewhere to live, you know, because we can ask the question like, what is what is a house today in Britain? What, why do we build houses? What, what are they for? Mm. What's their purpose? This is maybe a silly question because you might think, OK, well, a house is there to, you know, it's somewhere for people to live. And that's true. But houses also have another function in our society which is that they're a financial asset and a very lucrative financial asset for a lot of people that's propping up our financial system. And I think there's a conflict here, yeah? I mean, Mm. Marx would say between (laughs) use and exchange value. I'm talking about use and exchange value for, okay, I'm trying to put it in language, I guess, and I'm not using that, I guess. But that's, it's a useful thing. As soon as you get the idea, it's useful to get the idea and housing's a good way into it, that there are, things have a use value of like what they can be actually used for and then once they enter the market they have an exchange value of what they can be sold for as a as a become a commodity that's a useful thing because it doesn't just affect housing so i think it's fair to bring it up we we were exactly we're we're not being too marxist bro it's helpful it's a helpful way of understanding no it's good it's a very it's a very it's a a really um, uh, important thing to think about And, and we see this the fact that the exchange value or the idea of housing as a financial asset Mm-hmm. has undermined the ability for housing to be a home. These two things can come into conflict. You see this all the time. Uh, in the UK, you see this in the fact that half of new builds in London are left empty, despite the fact that we have a city where nearly at least 6,000 people sleep rough on the streets each night. Uh, so, And they're left empty because they can be left empty mm-hmm. and, and just accrue capital gains and make more money for their owners. Mm. Uh, We also see it in the fact that communities are kicked out of the areas in which they live in by gentrification so that spaces can be turned into luxury apartments. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, where I used to live, the old chest hospital is now being converted into a series of luxury apartments, <sighs> which I thought, given the corona crisis, is mm. maybe one of the poignant sign of the wrong steps we have taken mm. over the last kind of 20 years. Okay, so why did this commodification happen? We kind of know how it happened. Mm. It happened by the selling off of council homes mm-hmm. in Britain's biggest privatization of state assets, which is the right to buy policy. It's happened with the kind of rise of buy to let landlords, which was a term I realized was only coined in the 90s. Yep, It's quite a recent thing. And it was coined, I think, by the actual industry body mm-hmm. as well. Buy to let landlords has increased by thousands and thousands of percent since then. And it's benefiting capital in two layers then, because it's benefiting the, the, the mortgage industry and the buy to let landlord themselves. So there's two levels of extraction from the person actually doing the work that to pay the rent. Exactly, exactly. Because, you know, the, and the, you know, you have this huge rise in mortgage lending and this is the thing that's really been driving the prices up. It's mm. a bit like, I'm trying to think of a way to describe it mm. for people, but, you know, when iPhone bring out a new phone and it's like it continually increase in price and you think, but people's wages yeah, yeah, aren't yeah, going yeah. up. How can they... How can they <laughs> continue to buy these things? And it's basically because you just take out effectively a bigger contract on it. You yeah. know, your contract's longer. You pay it off over a bigger amount of time. You increase your debt and they're happy to give that to you. So it's the same thing with housing. They're happy to give you more debt. And that's the thing that allows the price to increase. And so basically, why did all this happen? I think it is largely to do with a challenge, the kind of crises that came out of the 70s between capital Mm. and labor. Finance, I think, was a response to the 
the fact that there were these kind of big conflicts within industrial capital and capitalists were looking for a new way to make money given kind of technological change as well and the bargaining power of labor at the time. Um, they, they went into the financial system and, and it kind of boomed and they were looking for financial assets to underpin the whole thing. And in Britain, the way to do it was to try and make everyone a homeowner. But what we're seeing mm. now, particularly with the generational thing to kind of maybe come full circle, is that you can't do that forever. Home ownership is now decreasing for a whole generation of people, quote, generation rent. They're mm. going to end up in a situation where they're not going to be able to afford to buy a house throughout their lives. They'll have to end up renting. In the first government inquiry into the issue in 2019, the government, this is the government, okay? They said if things carry on as they are, our generation will on average remain trapped in the extortionate private rental market throughout their lifetimes. In retirement, they could be forking out on average 80% of their pension income on rent. We're talking like 50 years time. And I hope in a way our politics will have changed a lot by that mm-hmm. point that this re- that these these predictions aren't going to come true mm-hmm. um and maybe that's a that's maybe the one of the last things we could talk about actually is like yeah why do we talk about capital and labor and class in this way because a lot of these stats are, are pretty depressing yeah like this is mm-hmm. quite a negative framing of our society and it's very like i don't know like it can make you feel hopeless uh, but mm-hmm. I think the important thing about understanding the capital labor relation is that actually there's a lot of power within labor. Nothing's revealed that more clearly than the Corona crisis, right? Totally, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like bloody hell, and 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 as, and as we see, which which as we mentioned earlier, which yeah. jobs are the important ones and which ones aren't, that gives a lot of power to people. We we know from the past that one of the most successful ways of engaging in a quote unquote class struggle to try and improve their situation is by collectively acting to demand better conditions, and mm-hmm. and it's a very you know it's a successful strategy when people work together, mm-hmm. work together to kind of do these things collectively, because it's only by as a group withdrawing your labor, or as a group threatening to withdraw your labor. It doesn't even need to go that far, you know, even as a group coming together, mm-hmm. pooling resources so that you can do skill shares on your rights or, you know, or run a campaign for somebody who in your in your community or your workplace who's being screwed over by something. It's only collectively that, you know, we can actually successfully challenge these structures. And I think the capital labor understanding of class helps to see that is like class mm-hmm. is something that we do rather than something that like I don't know like about our accent you know something that we can't really mm. change and it's that that's a good thing about the book is you consistently give agency to the people in the stories of like it sounds like you said it's it can be quite a, a bleak story of and a, a bleak narrative when we talk about how bad these things are the working class in this book has agency and it's a working class that won the weekend it's a working class that won limited working hours it's a working class that won uh, annual holidays through collective organization mm. and it's through that collective organization that we can succeed in the future and it's it's on the one hand it's unfortunate that the global crisis of capitalism that we're in right now and one that's even further radicalizing that that young generation that we're in a crisis where we can't as easily be together and we're all trapped in our homes but at the same time even in that context we're seeing mutual aid groups pop up everywhere there's possibilities in crisis for both the right and the left right and chin up definitely man definitely Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean. Ben's book, Split, is out now with Pluto Press. If you enjoy Mandatory Redistribution Party, please subscribe, share, and follow us on Twitter at Mando Party. 
thanks for listening. And as is everyone's new sign-off, stay safe. Thank you.